Thank you, male choir, for that ministry and music. Tonight, I'm going to be continuing on with Esther, chapter 4, and uh, I want to do something a little different. We won't have any handouts tonight, but we'll have it up on the screen. And I want to uh, take a moment here to get set up, so pardon me if I have uh, my computer up here and I'm just kind of going through it as we study together. I want to say thank you to Steve George for making that possible. He put in a lot of wiring up here to be able to make it so that I could do this and the entire sound crew as well, just in case I'm forgetting anybody because I know a lot of work was done to make that happen. But hopefully it will enhance and help you follow along a little bit better tonight as we study study Esther chapter 4. But picking up where we left off, um, we are now in this chapter And I would like to title this section, Esther's Monumental Decision, as you see it here on the screen. And the reason that I chose that as a title is because here in our passage for tonight, the hero will be faced with a decision that, depending on how um, she makes it, um, will determine not only her fate, but the fate of the entire Jewish nation. So tonight we come to the turning point of Esther's life. And you might even say it's the turning point of the entire book. And it all rests on one decision that she will have to make. You know, there's a lot of decisions that have changed the world. And I was trying to pull some people during the week to kind of get an idea of, um, you know, what were the major decisions that you think, you know, really altered history. Uh, I thought of a few. Um, In 1863, we have Abraham Lincoln who decided to publish the Emancipation Proclamation Uh, promising freedom to four million slaves in the Confederacy and giving the Union armies a moral cause to fight for. Uh, You might also think in 1945 when President Harry Truman decided to drop two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, making those the first times that weapon had ever been used in modern warfare. Then there was the case of Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka back in 1954, which ruled that it was unconstitutional to segregate black and white children in schools. And if we go back in history, there was the decision by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain to financially support the voyages of Christopher Columbus. And you can imagine if that hadn't taken place, then perhaps some of those discoveries that he made wouldn't have ever taken place or maybe taken a little bit longer for them to have been made. So since these events, there have been many decisions made of lesser importance. You could think of some other good ones that maybe aren't so important. Um, back in the 1950s, um, Walt Disney was deciding what to name his cartoon mouse. He wanted to go with Mortimer. His wife suggested on vacation that he change it to Mickey because Mortimer sounded a little bit too pompous. So glad he made that change. You might think of whoever the guy was who invented peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was a good decision, right? Then there's some not so good decisions, like if you were uh, able to remember changing the Coca-Cola formula to New Coke, that was a bad idea. Or whoever invented Barney, that was a really bad idea. Okay? So you have some good decisions, some bad, right? Here we come to Esther's monumental decision in Esther chapter 4. Could cost her life or the lives of the entire Jewish nation. So what is that decision? Well, let's read to find out. And I'll try and put the sections of text on the screen as we go. Um, Our text is Esther chapter 4, the entire chapter. That's verses 1 through 17. And uh, we'll take it in sections. At this point in the story, the last time we saw uh, chapter 3, there was this period of favor for Esther, where she was chosen to be queen above everybody else. 
Um, from that vantage point, it looked like things were going well for the Jews. The Jews had somebody as queen of all Persia. Uh, that couldn't have been too bad. But then at the same time, um, there was that incident where Mordecai was standing outside the king's gate and uh, King Xerxes honored Haman to be his right-hand man, as it were, and uh, ordered everybody to bow down before him. And Mordecai refused. And so as a result, um, he got into a little bit of a scuffle with, with uh, Haman. And uh, that caused some problems for him. And Haman decided to retaliate by not only uh, gaining approval for his execution, but also the execution of the entire Jewish nation. So he set forth a date whereby all the Jews would be exterminated from the nation of Persia. And when that date came, uh, all the other peoples were to attack and plunder them. So um, that's where we left off. And it said at the end of chapter 3 that the people were bewildered. They didn't know what was going on. So let's pick it up now in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And it says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. And in every province to which the edict order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai, as we're told, learned all that had been done. He read the written announcement that condemned the Jews to death. And because he often stood by the king's gate, it seems that he was able to investigate and hear from those inside, how the decree came to be. We'll find out later in verse 7 that he even knows um, how much money Haman agreed to pay King Xerxes. He obviously wasn't around uh, in the room when that deal took place, but he had heard through the grapevine all these things that it came to be, and so he knew the full story. And when Mordecai heard about this judgment that was handed down, verse 1 says he reacted in utter grief. So this verse tells us he did multiple things. Mordecai's reaction, what did he do? Well, it says, uh, one, he tore his clothes. Two, he put on sackcloth. And three, he covered himself in ashes. Now, those expressions of grief, though they may seem strange to us, were not unusual back in that time and before. In fact, we could go through the Bible and find many examples. And I tried to do that, to search for the word sackcloth and ashes in the Bible to see how many other examples we could come up with. And I'm not going to give them all to you tonight, but we know that people like Job did this sort of thing in mourning or in crying out to God. We know Joshua did when the people said, no, we'd rather go back to Egypt into slavery. He tore his clothes. Um, David did this um, when he found out about some of the the sins uh, among his sons. Paul, Barnabas, uh, they both did this when people declared that they were gods and were misunderstanding the message that they were preaching. Okay, so many of, of God's people have done this thing in the past. It was a very Jewish thing to do. And the purpose of of doing these things was to intentionally put yourself in a state of discomfort as a way of humbling yourself before God. You can imagine sackcloth, okay, uh, would be very itchy, very uncomfortable. Same with ashes being put on your face. It's a way of reminding oneself uh, your your position before God. We're dust and ashes. And also um, kind of visually portraying the grief that you're going through to God and, and in this case, to other people. It's a way of humbling yourself before God. And even though it's not mentioned, um, it's assumed in this passage that all these things accompany prayer. 
in other texts that we find with Joshua, David, prayer is also not mentioned there. But we understand that this was meant to enhance prayer. It wasn't a replacement for prayer. It's not something that was done to gain extra favor from God in prayer. But it was a way of focusing one's attention on prayer. So that's what Mordecai does. And as all this was taking place, Esther's maids and eunuchs saw what Mordecai was doing. So they went and told it to Esther. This was obviously not like anything she was used to from her cousin. And so quite naturally, Esther was troubled. Esther 4, verses 4 and 5, say this. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She, She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned uh, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So it worried Esther, you can imagine, quite a bit to think of her cousin, who she held sort of as a father figure, to be covered in ashes, to be wearing nothing but sackcloth, to be mourning in the streets, and she didn't understand why. She was sheltered from the rest of the world, understand. She didn't know what was going on in the outside world, and people didn't know she was a Jew. So nobody would have known that this applied to her at all, this edict that had gone out. Nobody would have known that she was in danger or that it affected her in any way. So she had to go assign a eunuch, one of her personal servants, to go find out what was going on. Now, um, I imagine that Mordecai would have told Esther himself, since he was normally by the king's gate communicating with her directly, or at least sending messengers her way. But the text tells us that he was unable to do that, that because he was in mourning, that the king would not allow anybody dressed in sackcloth by the king's gate. They had to stand further back because he didn't want to be around anybody who was in a gloomy state. Okay, this king was we can tell from other parts of this book was was obsessed with with riches, with pleasure. Of course, he didn't want to have anything to do with somebody who was in a bad mood or somebody who was mourning. He wanted only marry people around him. And you can think about in later times, um, there was no such thing as court mourners, just jesters. Okay, that's the idea going on. So he wasn't able to tell Esther himself. Um, Here we have a picture of Esther. And if you look off to the right, you can see somebody talking to another older man. That's supposed to be Mordecai. Okay, we can see a picture of him outside um, and the servant's going to you know, go relay what's happening to him, why he's in such a state. And you can see another servant almost communicating that he's telling Esther what's going on. Um, That's the scene that's described for us. But Esther found out what was going on through this servant, Hathak, and Mordecai um, relayed all this information back to her. Esther chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay him into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. So we see here that Mordecai told Hathak about everything that happened. This included the fact that Haman was the one who initiated the order to destroy the Jews and um, how much money was paid to have it done. And just in case she didn't believe what he was saying, 
He even sent with this servant a copy of the edict that was posted all around Susa to say, listen, this is a serious threat. We are in real danger here. And that would have been troubling for Esther, to be sure. Okay? Uh, that would have been a troubling thing to hear. But Mordecai didn't just give her the news. He also gave her a command. Okay? Um, so she couldn't just sit by and take no action. Mordecai ended um, these verses, as we see, with a command for her. And that was to go to King Xerxes and beg and plead for the lives of the Jews. Okay, now, let's stop there and examine the choice that lie before Esther. Esther was just told that an edict had been issued to destroy her entire people. And now she's being told by Mordecai to go in the presence of this king and to tell him to stop, to stop what's going to take place. Should she do it or should she not? Okay. Um, well, on the side of just going to the king, um, we can look at a pro and con list here okay, that I put up. So here's the dilemma. Mordecai wants Esther to plead with Xerxes to stop Haman's plot. It seems like a good idea. Something has to be done or all the Jews will perish. Okay, that's a fact. So she believes him. She believes the edict that he's telling her about. And she knows that something has to be done. Okay, so that much is true. Secondly, Esther is the queen and has unique access to Xerxes. Okay, who else in the entire kingdom who is Jewish has this kind of privilege? Nobody. They're all just regular people out in the streets, out in the kingdom somewhere. But nobody has the same access as the queen does. Okay. So... When she considers what Esther, uh, what, I'm sorry, what Mordecai has to say, these things make sense. However, what seems to ring out a little more clearly and a little louder than these two things is one big concern in her mind. And that is Esther could be killed. Okay? And when you look at it that way, um, all these other things seem to just kind of be pushed aside. Esther realizes this is a good plan, but on the other hand, it's putting her life in danger. So let's move on to the next passage here. Esther 4, verses 10 through 11. But Esther instructed Hathak to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. So here's a, a relief from an ancient wall carving, and we see Xerxes sitting on his throne with his scepter. And she's saying, if you enter into this man's presence without being called, you're dead, unless he extends that scepter to you. But who's to say that he's going to even do that for me? Okay. Now, you might think about this and say, well, what, what's Esther's problem? She's the queen. Why would she even have to worry about this? Of course he's going to extend the scepter. I mean, who wouldn't extend the golden scepter to his own wife? Okay, who wouldn't at least speak to their own wife? Um, but we, we learn that Esther's fears are well-founded. First of all, she's not making this up. She's not just creating an excuse. We can go back, and this is one of the cool things about the Bible. You can bring in other historical sources to the Bible and confirm what's being written. In the 8th century, there was a uh, historian named Herodotus who recorded how uh, ever since the time of uh, diocese, or I don't even know how to say his name. You'll have to ask me later on for the spelling. Um, many centuries before Xerxes was around, this Persian king, one of the first Persian kings, um, had declared this rule that Esther is referring to, that nobody is allowed to enter in the king's presence 
unless they're summoned first. Okay? And with that, the only way to avoid that punishment is if the king offers his favor to you, extends that scepter. So it's pretty neat that a secular historian records that this is the case, that Esther isn't just making this up. Now, there wasn't one exception that this ancient Persian king makes note of. And that is that there are seven individuals in the royal court that are allowed to enter into the king's presence without an invite. They are the king's special people. They are allowed to come in and not have to worry about this rule. Okay? And to which you might wonder, why wasn't Esther one of these seven important people? We don't know. Except to say that if we, if we look back in chapter 1 and 2, we can tell that this is a king who went through wine, he went through women uh, pretty quickly. And so if he got tired of Esther as a wife he could just turn around and turn to the next woman who interested him at the given moment. So just because he was, she was his wife doesn't mean anything. We do know that Haman seems to be one of those seven people, if there were in fact seven still by the time of Xerxes. Maybe he didn't have seven. Maybe he had whatever number he decided to have. Okay? But we do know that Haman was one of those uh, cherished people and Zer- uh, I'm sorry, Esther was not. Um, Herodotus tells us that if you're not one of those seven people, you could go to the king and uh, kind of ask first before stepping into his presence uh, if the king would be willing to see you. So Esther could have announced her business first from a distance and the king could have decided whether she should come before him or not and not risk her life. Some people have looked at this text and wondered, well, why didn't Esther do that? Why wasn't she at least willing to send a messenger to Xerxes and say, this is what I have in mind. Are you willing to see me? She wouldn't have uh, you know, had her life threatened in any way. She could have safely tested the waters. But then if you think about it, think of what she's asking. If you think about the request that she's about to make, we understand why she wouldn't have done that if such a possibility lie before her. Had she announced to Xerxes, even through a servant, uh, what was troubling her, that would have pointed the finger to Haman, who is currently in the king's good favor. Okay. And if she would have brought this general concern before the king, it would also have revealed that she was Jewish or that she was related to Mordecai. So you can see even that wouldn't have provided safety for her. Had she sent a servant to say, listen, king, um, I'm interested in talking to you about this subject. Would you be interested in seeing me? That would have given it all away. And if he was not um, on her side, if he was buddy buddy with Haman, as it seems he was, then her life would have been in danger. She would have been revealed as a Jew and she could have put her life in, in, in her own hands like that, just as if she would have gone before him in person. So that really isn't a solution. So we can see why Esther is unwilling to go to the king. She's scared, and rightly so. So we move on next to what happens next in this conversation. Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, verse 12 says. And when she did that, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. So, okay, here's where we're at. Esther, here's Mordecai's plan. She understands it, but she says, I'm going to be killed if I do this. This is not a good idea. I can't do it. I'm scared. Okay. And he comes back to that by saying, listen, uh, you're kidding yourself if you think that remaining silent is going to uh, bring safety to you. 
Okay? He, he rewrites her pro and con list for her. Okay? So this is where we left off. This is what she's thinking. Yes, it's a good idea. There's some pros to it. But I'm going to die. I can't do this, Mordecai. And Mordecai says, wake up. Okay? Your list is all wrong. So he changes their cons to more pros. Okay? He says, instead of that, realize this. Esther, you're going to die anyway. So don't kid yourself. You, you're scared about being killed going in front of, of Xerxes. If you say nothing, this edict's going to be carried out. And sooner or later, it's going to be found out that you're a Jew. Don't think that you can keep this a secret forever. You will be found out. Secondly, or fourthly, you could say, he says maybe the reason you are queen is for this very opportunity. So he gives her a second reason um, related to purpose. He says, who knows, but did you have come to power for such a time as this? Maybe this is why you're here. Have you ever thought about that, Esther? I mean, you're Jewish. You are in the position to talk to the king like nobody else is. Maybe you're here for such a time as this. So Esther decides to take her cousin's advice. This, whatever he said that we have recorded for us, it's convincing enough for her. And so we read in Esther 4, 15 through 17, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So here, Esther made an active choice to accept God's, uh, her role excuse me, in God's plan. Think of others... Uh, before herself is what Mordecai was telling her. Think of the larger plan that's going on here. And she listened. She realized what he was saying. She, she chooses at this point to identify with God's people and have that as a higher priority than saving her own life. So she demonstrates a measure of spiritual leadership, not only by accepting this difficult task, but also by asking every Jew in Susa to pray for her. We see that in the text. If I just go back here, she says, uh, pray for me and fast. Okay? Again, prayer is not mentioned, but it, you, you get that sense that it's related. It's bound up in fasting, just like with sackcloth and ashes. It's all done in an attitude of prayer. And there was, in fact, nothing more appropriate that she could ask her people to do than fast as a way of humbling themselves before God, asking for his deliverance. Esther passed the test that was laid before her. She stepped out in faith, as it were, and trusted in God no matter what the outcome. And with that, she responded, if I perish, I perish. That's not just a flippant throwing up of the hands and saying, well, I have no other choice, Mordecai. I, I guess I have to follow what you're saying. If I die, I die. I, I guess I can't do anything about it. No, I, I take that to be more of a, a commitment to follow what is right. Um, and, and just to say, you know what, God, if, if my life is going to be taken, then so be it. My life is in your hands. So in light of all these things that we just studied, what are we to learn? What lessons can we learn from this amazing account of Esther chapter 4? I have four of them for you. Let me list the first one. Esther 4 teaches how important it is for us not just to be Christians by name only, remaining passive in our faith, but believers who actively pursue God with our whole hearts. 
and minds and souls. See, this chapter is a big turning point in Esther's life. I want you to see that. Before this moment, I would have described Esther as somebody who was, in some ways, passive in her faith. She was certainly not somebody who lived a blatantly sinful lifestyle. Okay, So don't hear me saying that. And she wasn't somebody who intentionally turned her back on God. But yet, through a series of events that happened to her, I would describe her as somebody being more passive than active. A big struggle for me, as I've been preaching the series, has been how do I regard Esther in my mind? How do I evaluate her as God sees her? What, what's God's evaluation of her? And if you remember back to chapter 1 and 2, um, I was trying to convey to you that even though she made some poor decisions okay, in essentially having to sleep with the king, though it was not something that was uh, allowed by Jewish law, okay, he wasn't a believer, um, she wasn't yet married, okay, there's, a lot, there's a ton of problems with that. What I was trying to communicate to you, though, back then is that we, we find a lack of overall condemnation coming down from God. It, it is something that God views as wrong, but how do I balance this? Uh, I'm just trying to say that, that not a whole lot of words are spoken against Esther on her behalf. What I mean is that, that God seems to take her circumstances into account in, in his evaluation of her. So he's, she's not treated like somebody like an outright rebel. It's good to know that God knows our scenario, knows that Esther was pulled into this situation quite apart from her own doing. She didn't ask to be queen of Persia. She didn't want to take part in a beauty contest or to sleep with the king. That wasn't her desire. She was pulled away from her family against her will. She was put in this place um, you know, apart from her own desires. And it's good to, to realize that in the way that she's described, um, it seems that God knows that. But yet, we have to balance that. We can't say that Esther is an outright hero in every, you know, every aspect of her life. And, and it's how it is with so many biblical characters. You can't find in the Bible somebody who's just an absolute hero with no character flaws, absolutely. Okay? Except for Jesus Christ. Every one of them had, had flaws. And that's part of the point. When we especially look in Hebrews 11, when we see the kind of people who are listed, such as Samson, you might see Samson's name and wonder, how, how could he be included? He killed lots of people in rage, in uh, uncontrolled anger. Yeah, but that's partially the point, that, that we can be heroes of faith despite our shortcomings, that God's grace um, abounds. And, and we are so imperfect that God's grace is what makes us uh, acceptable before him. Okay? So she is in this position. We don't want to paint her as entirely a absolute evil person, but yet we have to come to the fact that she was passive, okay? When you look at these points in her life up to chapter 4, we realize that she didn't really take an active stand for her Jewish faith, okay? Um, she was told by her adoptive father, uh, for example, to not tell anybody that she was a Jew. Now, on one hand, you could say that that was her being submissive, and it was. She was responding submissively to her father figure. But on the other hand, uh, that creates a series of problems for her later on. Now she's in this position where she's a Jew and nobody knows it. Okay, so that's adding to the tension because she has chosen not to identify with her God. That's very different than the account of Daniel, where Daniel um, had no problem revealing that he was a father, follower of Yahweh, that he was not going to eat the king's food. That's very different from the way Esther chooses to react. From everything that we can see, uh, Esther eats the king's food. She doesn't obey whatever dietary laws there might have been. She goes along with the plan to not tell her Jewish identity. It's just a matter of being passive. 
also when it comes to sleeping with the king. Is she going to do it or not? Seems that she, again, not that she chose to be there, but she goes along with it. She passively goes along with the situations that are handed to her. Think of that in contrast to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told to bow down to the king's image but refused. Okay? Esther could have at any point in time reacted in a similar way, understand. She could have said no to sleeping with the king. She could have said no to, to remaining a, a secret Jew. But, but she chose to just go along. And, and that teaches us something about being passive versus active in our Christian faith. We have to make similar kind of decisions all the time in our own lives, right? Uh, I mean, for the teens who are out, out here, okay, tonight, uh, think about maybe just a daily battle in your school. If, you're, if you attend public school, okay, there are going to be friends around you, and you're, you're aware there are friends around you all the time who swear, who tell dirty jokes, okay? And this isn't just, li- you know, limited to teens, Anybody in the workplace today, in a secular workplace, knows that the same thing is true with adults. Okay? You are daily having to make the decision, am I going to participate in that? Okay? Am I going to tell those kind of jokes to fit in, to be funny with everybody else? Am I going to swear use the same kind of language that everybody else is going to do? Okay? Uh, if I'm a teen or an adult, I have to ask myself the question, am I ever going to tell somebody I'm a Christian? Am I going to ever talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and mention him by name? And have the guts to say that he is the only way to be saved. Okay. These are decisions that we have to make every day. The question that lies before us is, are we going to be passive? Like Esther, it seems, chose to be in the first half of this story. To just kind of say, well, that's what everybody else is doing. I'm just going to go along with that. Or to be active. Here in Esther chapter, chapter 4, she makes a decision. One that's not... Um, Mordecai's alone, but one that she decides to actively identify with God's people. To actively go before the king and plead for forgiveness, uh, not for forgiveness, for, for mercy. And to actively trust in God for her well-being and for the well-being of her people. Here is where we see a turning point, where she becomes active. And at some point, teens who are out there, you have to make the same decision. How long are you going to go along with what the world tells you to do? With the way the world acts, will you always remain silent or will there come a time where you actively decide to say, you know what, I'm not going to participate in this activity. I'm not going to speak the way that other people speak. I'm not going to do the things I see my friends doing. Adults, same is true. Friends, family, you, you feel the same kind of pressures from people in this world to make those kind of decisions or to not. And at some point we have to come to this time of crisis like Esther did and decide to be active in our faith. Second lesson I think we can learn is that the, the importance of a spiritual mentor in our life, somebody who motivates us to act when we aren't thinking with God's purposes in mind. You see, it was Esther who became active in her faith. I'm not denying that. But it also was Mordecai who challenged her to take that step. You might say that Mordecai served as a spiritual mentor to Esther for whatever other relationships he had to her being kind of an adoptive father all those kind of things he was also a spiritual mentor to her and that's so important it's so important that we have a close relationship with another Christian or Christians that can spur us on to love and good deeds when we need to hear it most that's what Proverbs 27 uh, 17 means when it says iron sharpens iron okay I, I so appreciate people that I know from seminary who, was in the same class, who are in the same classes as me that I still keep in touch with to this day. Um, 
that kind of challenge me in my faith. And I can think back on some times where I was not living the way I should. And um, I had one or two people who I you know, kept in t- contact with me who called me out on it. Esther, if she did not have Mordecai in this story, would not have made that decision. She was on the path of just choosing to remain silent and believing the lie that she was going to be safe. It took Mordecai to get her to start thinking in a different direction. And that shows us there, there can be times in our lives when we may be um, living a good Christian life, but we just somehow um, start to slip. And we don't start making the right choices that we should. And it's then that we could very well use somebody like Mordecai in our life to get us back on track and say, what are you doing? How, how are you being so passive in your faith? Wake up. Start living for Christ, obeying him and, and pointing out to us the sins in our lives and the ways we can be more specifically focused on God's plan. That's what Mordecai does. That's an encouraging thing. It's a good thing to have a mentor in your life. Or even, before I go on to that, not just a mentor, somebody who also could be on the same plane as you. It doesn't have to be somebody older. It doesn't have to be somebody who's lived the Christian life more than you. Maybe somebody who's on the same level as you that you can mutually challenge each other about spiritual things. Lesson three, Esther 4 teaches us that we should not just think about ourselves, but about God's larger plan and purpose for the world and how he intends to use us in it. Okay? In the beginning when Mordecai came to Esther and said she needed to go to the king in order to stop Haman's plot, Esther could think only about herself. What would such a plan mean for her? Surely Mordecai wouldn't ask her to do that. She could be killed, is what she thought. Nowhere in this line of reasoning was Esther thinking about how millions of Jews were going to die. And to us it seems silly. One person, millions of people. But you and I would have the same thought process if it was posed to us. We would be thinking about our own well-being. And, uh, and that's where she was. But before we come down too harshly on her, we need to recognize all these things. That that, that is exactly what would happen with us. And... And uh, we think, I can't witness to this person. That would mean that they would laugh at me. I can't stand up for uh, not talking in a certain way or not doing certain things my friends or coworkers are doing. What are they going to think about me? That often is the motivation behind it, why we don't say um, the things we need to say. We don't verbalize it in our heads, but if it comes down, if we were to really break down why it is we don't speak up for righteousness' sake, why we don't speak up for Christ, that's often the motivation what it's going to do to us. How are people going to perceive us? Mordecai came along and, and proposed to her that perhaps God had something bigger in mind than just her own security. He was intending to save the entire Jewish nation. And that's even more of a mind-blowing thought, that God wanted to use Esther in that amazing plan. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. Our fear in standing up for Christ is utterly stupid when we think of the larger issues of the universe. God intends for the lost people of this world to be saved, to come to a knowledge of Him, to experience eternal life. And we're scared of how they'll view us? I'm guilty of the same thought. So I say this semi-hypocritically because I, I, I know that my own fears drive me to not say anything. Plenty of times. So as I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself here. But can you not see how that's true? 
We so often think of ourselves, and there's such a bigger plan involved that God wants us to use it in, us in, and we become blind to it. It's good to recognize that there is a larger plan at stake, and our personal security, our feelings of being rejected are so minute in comparison to what amazing things God intends to use us in. The last lesson we can learn is that uh, God often uses times of crisis in order to wake us up in our faith. Think of what happened here, okay? What it took for Esther was a time where um, her entire family, her entire Jewish nation uh, was about to be destroyed. That's what it took to wake her up. And that doesn't mean that it always has to be that way for us. Sometimes we can live a Christian life and remind ourselves, pray. Um, God can use his Holy Spirit to convict us so that we continue on an upward path and, and continue to grow more righteous in our living, in our thoughts, in our actions. But sometimes it might just happen that we're going downhill and continuing to ignore God's promptings, ignore the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, maybe praying a little bit less, reading his word a little bit less. And God uses a major disaster to wake us up. And in that sense, God bringing a disaster into our lives is God's mercy, not God's displeasure for us. Because if you can think back in your own life, think back to times of disaster, times of crisis that you have experienced at some point in your life. Maybe at the time you couldn't believe how it was such a thing was happening to you. But maybe now, maybe now that years have passed, you can see the kind of things God brought about through it. And maybe even more specifically, some of the character changes that God brought about in your own life through it. There are a lot of times, I know, where God has brought me to a place of crisis where I can look back on that crisis now and realize that really drove me to my knees in prayer. That drove me to trust in Him more, to realize what it was I was doing wrong and to turn from it. So times of crisis aren't necessarily all bad things. When we look at the larger plan, the larger purpose of God, a lot of times, they can be for our good and for our spiritual well-being. That's Esther chapter 4. And in it, Esther makes this risky decision in faith to take a stand as one of God's people to go before the king. What will happen? Well, um, we'll have to get into the rest of the story when we come back again for Esther 5. But for tonight, I just want you to realize some of these things that we talked about. That it's important for us to recognize God's overall plan and what happens to us, to recognize his work even through the crisis moments in our life, um, to recognize the importance of having other people around us to spur us on to love and good deeds, and also what we talked about at first, the importance of being an active Christian and not just one who is passive. Esther finally chose to actively live out her faith. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this portion of your word where we can learn from, from Esther's example, and uh, more importantly than that, Lord, learn from uh, the example that you give us about your character, about uh, your overall plan in the world, about the way you use your people, as frail as we are and as imperfect as we are, as prone to thinking about our, our own selves and our own well-being as we are. Uh, Lord, thank you that no matter how far we slip, how passive we become in our faith, we are never too far gone for us to be woken up. Um, and God, may you uh, cause us, the next time we are presented with a, a chance to either take a stand for Christ or to sort of blend in with the world, help us to have the courage to take a stand, to become active in our faith and not passive, and to serve you more. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.